Welcome to the Military Child Education Coalition podcast, the show that highlights a wide range of challenges and triumphs that our military-connected kids experience. My name is Nikki Harrison, and I'll be your host today. We would like to say thank you for the support of the Hickam Officer Spouses Club for this episode. I am so excited to have joining me today Major General Retired Michael Harrison. We are thankful that you're here to chat with us, talk about your experience and your journey. And so I would love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, Nikki, good afternoon or good morning, depending on where you are across the fruited place. Thank you very much for having me today. It's an honor and privilege. I hope I'm not a bore. I don't consider myself to be a big star or anything. I'm just a regular old guy who was privileged to serve in the Army. Thank you for that. And could you tell us a little bit about maybe your background, where you were raised? Well, I'm a proud native Virginian. I was born at Fort Eustis back in 1958. My father was on active duty at that time. His active duty assignment at Fort Eustis was just a few miles from his home, where he and my mother made a home after they got married, which is Surrey County, Virginia, a small town, maybe about 6,000 people. So that is home for my family, both on the maternal side as well as the paternal side. And we have been able to trace our family lineage back some five-plus generations very small community, farming community. My father was a civil servant. He worked at Fort Lee, Virginia as a civil servant, now Fort Greg Adams. Uh, my mother was a homemaker. And one of the things that was special about our community, and I think about that often today, my best friends growing up and their parents and their grandparents were good friends with my parents and my grandparents. So we had this multi-generational connection throughout the community. As I indicated, it was rural. We did not know we were country folk. It, what we did was normal. Everyone had a garden. We raised farm animals for slaughter. That's how we got our meat. It wasn't until I left my beautiful home in Surrey that I recognized people would actually go to the store to buy vegetables and pork. That was strange to me. But that's a little bit about background and family. And I still get over to Surrey two or three times a week now. I'm living in Williamsburg with my wife, and we're only a few miles away from where I grew up. And there's no bridge to get us to Surrey. We have to catch a ferry to get over there. Well, what a wonderful background, like childhood. It sounds like an experience of community that you had. And I, too, am a descendant of farmers. My grandfather on both sides of my mom and dad were farmers as well. So <laughs> just in the Arkansas area, <laughs> a little bit different location, but so very exciting. Well, I know that you attended an HBCU and I would love for you to to talk about why you chose to attend that university maybe some tradition or unique opportunities that you felt like you could have there? It's sort of an interesting story. 
a lot of people that I know, friends and family, they were bound by tradition to go to an HBCU. That is not necessarily why I chose to go to HBCU. There are two big reasons I chose, and some people would consider this sort of, oh, he was a naive youngster. But the first reason, I had a first cousin who was about 10, 15 years my senior that I absolutely admired growing up. I just wanted to be like him because in my eyes, he was so cool. You know, he, he could sing, he could play an instrument. He had a big brain that spanned the spectrum of science all the way to literature and the arts. And he had gone to Howard. So that was my role model. I have to go to Howard because my cousin Tyrone went there. The second reason I developed a love for history, civics, and government while I was in high school. From my perspective, history, civics, government, and a little bit of English were the only things important from an academic perspective. And as a teenager growing up in the 70s, I was very cognizant of the civil rights struggle in the 60s. And Howard University was one of the first large major universities that had a big student protest. And I thought that was really fascinating, watching all of the riots and the protests at Howard University. And I thought I could be part of that, even though it was 1976 when I went to Howard as a young freshman. But that was my real reasoning and rationale. It had nothing to do with the wonderful history of the HBCUs and the academic role um, that it had played in educating black Americans. But those are the two reasons I went there. And finally, my perspective as a high schooler in a small town that was about 60, 40 black versus white, most of the teachers I had in my high school were HBCU trained. My father was an HBCU graduate. My mother was a high school graduate. So my worldview was all about HBCUs, although that had less to do with my own personal reasons for deciding to go to an HBCU. But that happened to be what was all around me. And in Surrey, my high school, elementary school years were shaped with all black students. And the reason for that, in the 60s, a lot of the white citizens across Virginia decided they were going to defy integration by not integrating schools and establishing private schools. And Surrey County was big into that. So they established private academies. And I did not see a white student in a classroom until my senior year in high school. And one of the first things I found out was he was just like a lot of us. He wanted to get an education. He liked to have fun. He could be mischievous. And I quickly learned, I said, well, this is not what I thought. I thought it was going to be some big, big deal. And we are still connected today. He's a rocket scientist, by the way. <laughs> wow. I love hearing stories of you know, when you have someone that impacted your life as a child and you've been able to carry that individual with you uh, through adulthood. So I, I think that's wonderful. And really, your reasons for attending an HBCU, I think, are, are fantastic. I loved the 
the protest riot part. I love that your cousin, you know, maybe unbeknownst to him, was a role model for you. Like you saw him and you were like, this is great. And I think a lot with universities, whether it's a historically black college or university or one that's not, sometimes it just takes a connection. You know, someone that you know that is connected to that institution I think that's really great and fun. I I liked your, you know, rationale there. So I know that you spoke about participating in the ROTC program in college. And I think for some, they don't realize that HBCUs have ROTC programs too. Did you know early on you wanted to pursue the military? Was, Was that a goal for you? Well, Nikki, that again, another thoughtful question. I knew from the time I was about five or six years old that I wanted to serve in the military, but my horizon was only to serve just a few years. First, my father and I were so close, and I I don't know that I've been much closer to any individual in my life than uh, my dad, and his service was about 13 years. He wanted to stay in the Army 40 years. And he developed this disease called ulcerative colitis. So he was medically retired at 13 years. But throughout my childhood, he had these two big photo albums that contained pictures of his time in the Army, Germany and France. Five or six of his 13 years were spent in Europe. And he used to wow me with these stories of how much fun he had in Germany and France. And the way Germans and French citizens treated him and his fellow black soldiers. He enlisted in March of 48. And this was at that transition period when the military was being desegregated on paper, but not in actuality in terms of how troops were organized. And those stories just captivated my attention. And the second thing that I learned from him There were two young men in our county that my father served as role models for them, and both of them went on to become officers. So my father used to always tell me, son, when you go to college, I want you to enroll in ROTC so you can be an officer like Perry and like, I can't remember Colonel Wright's name, I will call him Buck. What those two individuals told me was every time my father came home, not on leave, but on furlough, that was the language used in the 50s and the 60s, he would have on this uniform. And they described this magazine perfect picture of a man who could wear a uniform like no one who had ever come through the county. And to this very day, I am still connected to those two individuals. Both of them are into their 80s. And I constantly remind them of what they meant to my father in terms of him being proud of them. And I just gravitated toward that, and that motivated me to join ROTC. And when I went to Howard, there were a lot of opportunities for a young 18-year-old wide-eyed freshman from the country. And the first table I went to during freshman orientation week was the ROTC table, and I got enrolled in the program. What a great story again with role models i i just want to highlight the the significance and the importance of role models and that you saw that as something to aspire to be you know my father was in the 
Air Force. He's a Vietnam veteran. And he talks about a very kind of similar reason for why he entered military service and seeing it as an opportunity for a, you know, young black man from a coal mining town in Kentucky. And so I just love that. And I would love if you could share some of the benefits of ROTC that you feel like are really important. Nikki, you know, there there are several. One of the first things I would like to highlight, I developed uh, lifelong friendships from some of the fellow cadets that um, I met at ROTC. We are still very, very close today. And I will always value those um, friendships. The second, and this is from a financial perspective, you know, like a lot of students who go to HBCUs, we didn't come from wealth, although you couldn't tell us we weren't rich. We felt we were. But um, financial, I was a three-year scholarship recipient, and that really helped my mother and father because by the time I was a senior, they had three of us in college. And, you know, when you're a civil servant from a small country town working at Fort Gregg Adams, you don't make a lot of money. And that was a tremendous help to my parents. And the other thing, and this is probably one that is more memorable for me when I think about benefits of ROTC. My senior year, I had a full plate. I was carrying 22 hours my second semester as a senior because I had dropped some courses that were hard that I didn't think were important. And my advisor reminded me that if I wanted to graduate on time, I had a lot to make up for. So I had to take 22 hours my second semester as a senior just to graduate in four years. The second bit of weight I had on my plate, I was the commander of the ROTC Cadet Corps. I was the president of my fraternity. And I was in love with my college sweetheart, so I'm thinking about a future once we graduate. But probably the most significant, my father was at Walter Reed Hospital suffering from colon cancer. And Walter Reed Hospital, if you don't know D.C., is about three or four miles north of Howard University's campus. So every morning, I would go up to the hospital to help take care of my dad. You know, he, he was really in bad shape. And I would go in the evenings. And on one particular evening, I went up to see him. And as I rounded the corner on his ward, he was on this cancer ward, I heard all of this laughing coming from his room. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what's going on in there? So I peeped through the window and I saw my professor of military science sitting at my father's bedside. And I'm not talking a distance away, but I noticed his chair was pulled up close to the bed where their faces were about 18 inches apart, and they were just talking. And I stood there and watched that for almost 30 minutes. And my professor of military science had never even met my father. I didn't tell anyone that my father was in the hospital suffering from cancer. And so I couldn't figure out, one, why he was there, two, who told him about it. And to fast forward, as we approach final exams, every class I walked into to take my final, the instructor asked me a strange question. Michael, how you doing? Are you ready for your final? Do you need more time to prep? And I'm thinking, what, what is going on here? This instructor has to say two words to me all semester. I later found out that one of the non-commissioned officers in the program had told my PMS about my father. And I had a very close relationship with our instructors, the NCOs. They were both special forces guys, and I thought that was cool. And one of them had told my PMS about that. 
And I later found out that he, my professor of military science, had gone to all of my instructors and said, this is my cadet battalion commander. He has to graduate because he has a regular army commission and I want you to help him. And they, he explained to them what I was doing around the clock to help my father who was uh, dying from cancer. I had to let that marinate for a while because all through ROTC, we have been taught about leadership. And when you become a lieutenant, you are not only responsible and accountable to your soldiers, but to their families. So as a young 22-year-old Howard University cadet, it hit me, that is what leadership looks like. And that lesson, I mean, it was embedded in my soul. And we were commissioned and I'm going to do a little backward planning here. We were commissioned. Well, first, we graduated that year on the 10th of May. On the 9th of May, we were commissioned as second lieutenants. And on the 8th of May, we buried my father. And he had died on the 4th of May, five days before I was commissioned. And he loved the Army. But when I think about Howard ROTC and the ROTC instructors I had, I just remember Colonel Welton Hamilton and him sitting at my father's bedside and what that taught me about humanity and leadership. And I took that example with me every day for 34 years on active duty. So when people talk about the benefits of ROTC, that's the example I think about. What a, a story, and I'm having a hard time holding back the tears. There's just so much in what you just said. I mean, the rapport that you had with your instructors, the power of connection and the relationships and the camaraderie. It's really amazing that you had that. And wow, which really leads into what I was going to talk about next. Did you feel like attending an HBCU made a positive impact on who you are today. I feel like the answer is probably yes, but I'll let you talk a little bit about it. You know, it did have a positive impact on who I am today, but I'm also mindful and I give credit first to who I am today, obviously to the almighty God and second to my mother and father the way they raised me. I can't say enough about how they raised me. And quite honestly, I also have to add, for four years when I was at Howard, I met this young girl from Connecticut, and she was a very serious young woman. And I found that kind of interesting because I had met a lot of flighty 18-year-olds, not that I was much different, mind you. But young freshmen, we kind of move around like this big amoeba because we don't know anything. And we were in this group. Most of the kids were from Philly or New York or Chicago. And she was the only one that wasn't from a big city like that. She was from Connecticut. And I was from Surrey, which is like Mayberry RFD from the old Andy Griffith series. We became an item in my sophomore year. And her serious focus and non-tolerance for foolishness. It attracted me and it became a part of me and everything that, you know, I have become, I offer tribute to her as well. And, you know, May will be 43 years of marriage for us. I don't mean to digress, but that's part of the HBCU shaping experience. And the final thing I'll say, and, and this is kind of important, and some people are not comfortable with this, but when you are a black American 
and you go to an HBCU and you come from a background like I did, there is a cultural comfort there where you are not the only one or one of a few. You can set aside any perception, oh, I'm being treated like this because of the way I look. When you screw things up there, it's because you didn't put forth the effort and you didn't work hard enough. So you can't blame anyone but yourself. And so that part was significant in that formative part of my life. You know, you're still a youngster at 18 to 22, and that helped build the confidence. It helped me understand that when I fell short, it normally had to do with the man I was looking at in the mirror and nothing else. I got that from the HBCU. The other thing that really helped me, I didn't realize how naive I was about the world and my own black culture growing up in a small rural town. When I went to Howard, I was introduced to the urban side of our culture. And let me tell you, I was absolutely clueless from how I dressed to how I comported myself with normal greetings. It was healthy in terms of what it taught me about being able to assimilate in more than one culture. Powerful lesson. A very powerful lesson and a great support network. And the cultural significance, I think, is huge. We talk so much about being able to, as someone who's also a Black American, seeing myself in others, right? The fact that there's Black Americans that are scientists and doctors and all the things. And I think it's important when you go to an institution of higher learning, you see others who you may not have had that experience of having, like you said, growing up. Your children now are adults. Right. And we would love to know, did they follow the same path of ROTC, HBCU, and the military kind of like you did? We are proud of our children beyond measure. They are all three are living adjusted lives and paying their own bills, and we are excited about that. Our oldest is 33. He chose not to go into the military. He has a doctorate in business administration and works as a director of marketing for a major corporate firm. But he reminds me at least once a week, he said, you need to remember that I supported all of the services, not just one, for 10 years living in Tokyo. And he lived in Tokyo for 10 years and just moved back to the States. He worked as the director of marketing and communications for the University of Maryland's global campus, Asia. So he tells us, I can tell you more about all of the services. I'm joint. I can be parochial. And he, he knows the institutions. We are most certainly proud of him. Our middle boy started down the path that I started, HBCU, ROTC, and then decided college just was not for him. He came back home and I would ask him, what's his plan? And he told me one day he was working on it. And so I told him I had a friend of mine I wanted him to meet. And I had a recruiter come by our house and we put our arms around him and said, you're going into the army, young man. He's been in now. March will be 11 years. And he is in the Middle East right now. And we're so proud of him. He's in Special Operations Command, and he has a unique set of skills that will serve him well whenever he decides to leave, and he will finish his degree hopefully within the next year. He recognizes the value of education, but the thing our middle son taught us 
not every 18-year-old is ready to go to college. And it has very little to do with their intellect. It has more to do with their interest. He flunked freshman studies, and the only requirement for freshman studies is to have a pulse. But he got a B in chemistry. I mean, just think about that. We're proud of him, and we're hoping that he redeploys here safely, but proud to have another soldier in the family. Our youngest son is currently in Okinawa, Japan, and he is a Marine. I couldn't figure out, wait a minute, son, you were raised in an Army household. And I listened to him one day doing this telephone interview with one of the Marine recruiters. Uh, he wanted to go in ROTC. The Marine recruiter said, your dad's an Army general. Why are you interested in the Marines? And he said, you know, I have always been one to take the path less traveled. And I think the Marines are right for me because y'all are small. And he said, whenever you go somewhere, you only see a Marine flag. You don't see an infantry flag, an engineer flag. This is from a 17-year-old. He is a company commander in the Marine Corps, and we're proud of him. So we got two in the military, one who supported the military, and they're all paying their own bills, and we're excited about that. And the oldest has given us a beautiful granddaughter that my wife and I are just absolutely spoiling and ruining. And she's two and a half years old. I love all of that. And, you know, as someone who has a son who is about to be 18 and go off to college, we too, my husband and I can't wait for the day that he has a job and, and is off our payroll, so to speak. <laughs> So we're not there yet, but almost. But it just is a testament to your and your wife's parenting, the fact that they continue to have service in the military, supporting the military, and yay for the Marine. I think I told you I'm married to a Marine, so I, I'm kind of excited about that. Really nice to hear that your kids did follow down that path. So since your retirement from the military, I know you've continued to give back to your community. I'd love to know what service looks like now and what does service really mean to you? Like a lot of military retirees, we make the big mistake, especially senior leaders like general officers. We spend so much of our time training, leading, and developing our youngsters have a plan. When you decide to leave the military, you have a whole new life ahead of you. Prepare for that now, whether it's through education, training, self-study, et cetera, et cetera. We don't listen to our own counsel. And when I retired from the military, I had not spent five minutes, I mean, literally five minutes thinking about what I wanted to do the day I took my boots off. But I will tell you what I did my last day on active duty. I went back to Howard University and I spent a couple of hours with the cadet corps at Howard, the juniors and seniors, talking to them about what I had learned over the preceding 34 years and my hope and aspirations for them in the future. That just meant the world to me. And the second thing I had done, and this might have been two weeks before I left, general officers are tasked in the national capital region when remains are repatriated at Dover Air Force Base, Delaware. They send a general officer out there to receive the remains and to talk to the family. And during that period, the emotions are still raw because they just learned of the loss of their family member. I went on one of those missions just a few days before I retired just to make sure I never, ever lost touch with the price of service. And so that sort of set me up for what came next. When I retired, 
I wandered around aimlessly. I worked as a consultant for a small IT firm, and I had an opportunity to do a little bit of coaching and mentoring over at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. The next thing I did, I went to work as a contractor over at the U.S. State Department in the Bureau of African Affairs. I worked in this program called the Africa Contingency Operations and Training Program. And that was a State Department-sponsored program that supported African military units in the execution of missions for the United Nations and the Africa Union. And I really enjoyed that. I spent about two years working as a president and general manager of an international security company where I was going in and out of Iraq about once a quarter, overseeing our operations and providing both fixed site and armed mobile security for people that worked in the oil and gas industry. So I did that for a couple of years. And then my wife and I relocated to Williamsburg, Virginia, where we are currently living. And since I've been here, I've been actively involved with nonprofit organizations and civic clubs. For instance, I'm a member of the Williamsburg Rotary Club, where I served the last three years as the foundation chair. That's a big fancy term that means I'm responsible for raising money and causing people to give money. The more meaningful thing that I've been able to do, I came up with this concept for feeding homeless families that have been relegated to living in motels. And we're in our third year of doing this, where we take meals the third Wednesday of every month, and we average about 15 to 25 meals where we will deliver to motels around the town of Williamsburg. And what we have learned, homeless families know no color, know no gender. The they mix of families that are without homes and the ability to get a decent hot meal would shock a lot of America. We have this picture of poverty and what it looks like and who it impacts. When we knock on a motel room door and that door swings open and you see a two or three year old standing there in a dirty t-shirt and McDonald wrappers all over the floor, it tugs at your heartstrings. I'm also involved with the NAACP's Legal Redress Committee where we interview people who have challenges and problems where they feel they have uh, been mistreated. I'm involved with another organization called the Village Initiative, where I run for my fraternity, this little program called the Book Box Program. You have these disparate communities that are not anywhere near a library, and you have all of these young kids that don't have exposure to what a library can offer. So this organization has built these little book box containers in playgrounds in common use exterior locations. And we put books in there, pre-K through sixth grade. And the feedback that we're getting from grandparents, caregivers, and parents, please continue to bring these books because these kids are now reading and it takes them away from that digital thing that a lot of youngsters gravitate toward. So that was just a few of the things, along with service on the uh, Jamestown, Yorktown Foundation. I'm very active there, too. So what I hear you saying is you're doing lots of things. Is what I hear is service. You are staying busy and you are giving back to your community. And you're really creating this legacy of service throughout your life. So 
military service, community service, and giving back to those around you. To highlight something that you said a little earlier about your transition after retirement, I feel like that's so important to talk about. You know, what does life look like after your military service? So our military families are faced with many unique challenges. We know it's a very highly mobile population. So how can the military support the service member and their family, especially now? I think the military, our sole purpose is to fight and win the nation's wars. That's a given. That's what we do. We can't do that successfully if soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines don't have a stable, supportive home that backs their service. And there are a lot of traditions in the military. And traditions, in many ways, are very, very good because it's a foundational piece of glue that holds an organization together and allows it to sustain itself. But there are traditions that require adjustment over time. And one of the ways I think the military can better help families is to recognize that families have needs that go well beyond the traditional military family. When families move, families typically move together. But what that has done over the years, it has made it very, very challenging for a lot of the spouses of the serving active duty member to have a consistent, stable career with upward mobility. And that's key, with upward mobility. And spouses have really suffered along the professional growth line. So I think the military should continue working hard to support the dreams and aspirations of the family members as well as that of the member. And notwithstanding, the focus is still on fighting and winning our nation's wars, but you're not going to do that if you have dysfunctional, dissatisfied families. I'll give you an example. Many years ago, it was unheard of for a commander to make a permanent change of station move and leave his family at place X. The kids had to change schools every two or three years. In some cases, it really stymied the growth and the building of confidence in the kids because they had to leave behind friends. They had to leave behind achievements that they had made. When my son was born into his senior year, I was coming out of Afghanistan and the army had told me, you will proceed on permanent change of orders to duty station X. Well, it was the best job in the United States Army for me. They were assigning me as a deputy division commander, and I'm an infantry officer. And at that time, there were only 10 infantry divisions in the United States Army, which means they only had 20 positions for deputy division commanders. And wow, I was going to be one of those. Well, when I sat at the family dinner table, and I had just gotten back from Afghanistan, my son announced to me, he said, Dad, I'm really going to miss you this year. I, I can't go uh, where the Army is sending you. They just selected me to be the captain of the football team and the captain of the wrestling team. And I had to stop and think about that. And my wife looked at me like, well, I wasn't getting any support from her. And so we had to have a big family discussion. And I had to look at this through the lens of what's best for my family could I still support the Army and do what the Army was asking me to do and still attend to the needs of my family? And we made the decision to leave my family in place. Well, 10, 15 years earlier, the Army would not have tolerated that because tradition overrode the expectations of what the spouse and the family wanted to do. 
that was a lesson that I learned where the Army can be really accommodating, and that is just one way the Army can help families. And the other way that I think is vitally important, a lot of military organizations have established programs that focus on family resiliency. And I think the military should continue doing that because we're learning things about family members now. Suicide is just growing at a rapid pace, you know, since I first came into the military. Coping skills with things that you and I would have never imagined are becoming more and more difficult. And the military has to recognize that. And I think in many ways, the military has recognized that. And they are availing themselves to be more accessible to doing things differently. I think that is really important what you said. You know, military readiness is about family readiness too. And I do think the military has come a really long way from when I was raised as a military child, kind of watching my mom and dad to being a spouse and raising military children. It's, you know, I've seen the growth. And as long as we continue to do that, I think we can get better and better. So we've talked about so many things, but I would love if you could give some advice to someone considering military service or military career. Is there one thing that you would tell them? So much of life is not centered around self and you have to identify what is it that you're willing to offer that's bigger than you. And if you can start to think that way, then I would encourage you to give the military a good, honest, hard look. The second thing I would tell people is when you're trying to figure out where you want to be and what you want to do, Grow comfortable looking in the mirror, asking yourself the hard question. Who am I? Why do I feel? Why do I think the way I do? And what can I do that would make a better me? And what can I do to serve the nation that has given me so much? Even though I don't recognize the nation has given it to me, you don't really get to appreciate what you have and where you live until you've been somewhere else and you see others that are without. And, and that's one of the things, if you really want to get an appreciation for why are we the greatest, why should I put my hand over my heart when they play the national anthem? If you give the military a try, the military will send you places that will help you answer that question more than any other institution that I know. And I've had the privilege of walking the ground in more than 50 countries. I would have never had that opportunity as a small country boy from Surrey, Virginia, had I not put on the cloth of our nation. And I tell that story. In fact, I'm telling it to 250 young junior ROTC cadets on Saturday morning and 80 junior ROTC cadets next Thursday. I think that's great advice. I love the questions that you're saying that you should ask yourself in a moment of self-reflection. And, you know, you talked about traveling. If you have the opportunity to travel to other places outside of the United States, it does give you a different perspective and a really deep respect for what we have within the United States. I think the military community is unlike any other and I know I'm thankful to be a part of the community. I thank you for your time today, for your stories. You're an incredible storyteller. And just for a life of service, thank you so much. Nikki, you're quite welcome. <laughs>
and all the best to you and your team. I'd like to thank Major General U.S. Army retired Michael Harrison for his time today, as I really have enjoyed the conversation and all of his wonderful stories. Thanks for listening to the MSEC podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, and give today's show a five-star rating. And don't forget to leave us a comment on topics you'd like to hear more about. We'd like to give a special thanks again to the Hickam Officer Spouses Club for supporting this episode and Consentus Media for audio mixing. I'm Nikki Harrison, and until next time, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. Be kind.